Mercy View. My name is Jema Raubach. I'm a partner here at Mercy View. And tonight we are reading Titus 3, 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on those things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Mercy of you, this is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, this evening, if you have your Bibles still open to Titus, that's where we're going to camp out tonight. Uh, one of the things about learning that you're going to preach at 6 p.m. on a Friday is that the amount of time you have to get ready for a message um, is a little bit reduced. And so, thankfully, I've had enough uh, opportunities to preach that I was able to go find something and, and kind of pull it out and dust it off and say, okay, um, maybe this is something that we could hear this evening. And I believe it is. Um, after spending the last couple of days looking at this passage and uh, this idea together, um, as we get ready to move into the state of the church next week, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that the top value for us here at Mercy View is the gospel. If you've been participating in our partnership classes the last few weeks, um, if you have just decided to come join us and you were digging around on our website, you will see that the gospel is the thing that matters the most to us here at Mercy View. We are just committed to the gospel. We talk about it a lot. We mention it a lot. It's the most basic, the most simple piece of information in the entire world. And paradoxically, it's the richest, deepest, and most complex and confounding concept that you'll ever try to wrap your mind around. Wherever you are in your walk with God, whether you have been walking with him uh, since it feels like uh, Abraham was about to offer Isaac up on the altar and you're wondering if he's going to take you home like he did Elijah or whether you're in your 30s with small kids and you hope and pray every night that they're going to start this journey that you've begun and come to understand this thing that you now know or tonight you're here and you have yet to start that journey uh, with Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are on the journey this evening. This thing that we call the gospel is for you. We have this in common, this basic and simple yet deep and complex concept is our deepest need. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. In our time together, we're going to unpack what Paul says as he explains what the gospel is in Titus chapter 3. So we have all this language around how we talk about the gospel, but what exactly is the gospel? Like what, what do I mean? What does Brad mean? What does anybody, when they get up here and they start to preach, mean and when they say that we believe the gospel? 
what do you mean in your group on Thursday night when you tell that member who's struggling with sin or walking through grief or battling depression or having just lost their job to trust in, hope in, be strengthened by, rejoice in the gospel? What are we talking about in these moments? There are a lot of folks who've grown up in church and uh, they think that the gospel is merely this story about Jesus's death and resurrection and dying for sins, which it is. And praise God for that. That if they just say a prayer and get baptized, they show up a couple times a year, or maybe once a quarter, give some money every now and then, and they, uh, they're going to die one day and get to walk the streets of gold and frolic with the cattle on a thousand hills. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's your concept of the gospel. If so, what we're treating the gospel as is nothing more than the customs check at the pearly gates that gets our passport into heaven stamped as we get ready to enter into the ever after. And there's folks who have come to equate the gospel with the feels. It's after all good news. And so when I need to pick me up, because I've been particularly bad that week or I've indulged my flesh a little bit more than I need to and I need somebody to just tell me that everything's gonna be okay and pat me on the back and say, go get them. That's what the gospel becomes to me. It's my uh, feel better, pick me up. And then there's those who think that the gospel is simply just some story about this guy named Jesus, if they've ever heard it at all, who did some good stuff. Maybe some not so good stuff, we don't know. He was a religious Jew in the first century, so he probably believed some things that aren't that great. But he's basically a nice guy who told everyone to be nice to one another and just kind of lived a, hey, you do you, I'll do me, and life will be great kind of life. And if the cheekiness wasn't evident enough, I'll just say it plainly, none of that's the gospel. That's not the gospel, but this is. The gospel is that God saves sinners from their sin because of his righteousness and for his glory, not because of anything that they have done. And the first thing that we need to do tonight is unpack that sentence and see where we find that sentence in Titus 3. That's not all we need to see tonight. So you need the gospel as well, and we need to see why we need it. You need the gospel because you are and you were and you still sometimes can be a sinner unable to bring anything of merit or worth in your own power to God. And if you're going to understand what the gospel is and why you need it, it's important for us finally to see what the gospel does. And so tonight we're going to unpack those three things and we're going to start here with that first sentence, what is the gospel? And this is it that God saves sinners from their sin because of his righteousness and for his own glory, not because of anything that they've done. So if you would look with me at the text that Jama read earlier, we're gonna start actually in verse four. There's four verses here uh, that are probably the clearest, most concise statement of what the gospel is in all of the New Testament and maybe in all the scriptures. But Paul says this, we're going to read this several times tonight in its full because it's important. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In that one statement, we find a single central focus and theme. God saves sinners. That is the gospel message. This is the most basic reality that any of us can ever know or understand. God, the I am, creator of all that is and all that was and all that will be, has in love pursued and rescued sinners from their sin. That's why Paul can say in Romans that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And this kindness, as we see here in Titus 3, it came when God, our Savior, appeared. And at that moment, he came to save us, not because of our righteous works, not because of our good deeds, not because of what we had to offer, but because of his mercy and grace. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's the news that we have hope. It's the news that we can find real meaning and purpose in this life. It's the news that animates the mission that Jesus sent the disciples on in Matthew chapter 28 that we're going to spend an entire month talking about next month. The news that God desires to save sinners from their sin. Not just that he does it. He desires to. He wants to. Do you realize how big of a deal that is? If you understand your sin, then you will. If you don't, then once you start to, you'll understand just how amazing it is that God wants anything to do with any of us. Because sin isn't just bad stuff that we do from time to time. It's outright rebellion against God. Sin shows hatred and contempt and disdain for God and for his righteousness. And so how do kings deal with rebels who seek to usurp their authority and their power and take their stuff? Typically, they crush them, if they can. And the Bible says that's what God is going to ultimately do to unrepentant sinners. He says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. If even earthly rulers have a right to impose their power on rebels... How much more does the creator and sustainer of everything that is have a right to exercise justice? But, which is probably the way that every great verse in scripture, particularly the ones about the gospel, begin. It's how verse three of Titus begins or verse, chapter three, verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, 
He saved us. He would be just and within his rights to destroy us. But, but he's good and he's loving and he's kind. And for some reason that we can never fully know or explain, we're told that he has saved us in spite of us. Somehow it brings him pleasure. Somehow it brings him glory. And friends, tonight, this is the gospel. That God has loved you. That he became a man for you. That he died for you. And he has extended an offer of eternal life to you. And now in Christ, he takes your mourning He turns it into dancing. He takes your sorrow and he turns it into joy. He takes your sin, this thing that has earned you God's wrath, and he takes it upon himself and he turns you into a trophy of his grace because he takes rebels and he makes them sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. This is is the gospel that God saves sinners. He saves you from your sin because of his righteousness and for his glory, not because of anything that you have done or can do. It rests on him and him alone and not on you, which leads to the second thing that we need to see in our text tonight. Why do we need it? Why do you need the gospel? Why do I need the gospel? Why, if you've been walking with the Lord for the last 20 or 30 years, do you need the gospel this evening? Because whether or not this is the first time you're hearing it or the thousandth, you still need it. So look with me, if you would, back uh, a verse before where I just read a moment ago in Titus 3, 3. Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Friends, you need the gospel. I need the gospel tonight because at the core of our being, we are or we were, and even if we were, we sometimes still act as if we are foolish and disobedient. Led astray, slaves to sinful passions and pleasures, and full of hate. If tonight you're here and you aren't a Christian, what uh, we read here in this verse, it needs to have the tense changed. That Paul would say that right now your condition is not that you were, but you are foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Because apart from Christ, you have no way to be right. There's no way to be justified before God on your own because you bring nothing to the table of merit. None of us do. And so we need the gospel. We need the fruit of the gospel taking root in our heart and producing faith and repentance. 
turning from your foolish disobedience and from our faithlessness toward obedience and faithfulness to God. And tonight, if you are already a Christian, you've seen the the true fruit of faith and repentance already manifested in your life, but you need the gospel too. Because what we find for the Christian is that the gospel is this thing that allows Paul to say to us in Colossians 3, that we still need to put to death those things that are earthly that remain in us. But there's still this work that needs to be done in our hearts. And so we're to put to death sin. And he can say that because the Christian is positionally right, positionally just before God. But we still struggle with sin. We still have to fight against our flesh. It's still there. And it's this weird thing that we we can't seem to wrap our head around sometimes because I want to do what's right, but sin is lying close at hand. And so the 16th century German reformer, Martin Luther, he had a phrase to describe the Christian life. It's his Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. It means at once justified and sinner. At the same time, justified, right, made free from the penalty of sin, yet sinner. You were a sinner, unrighteous, unable to stand before God or inherit the kingdom, but you were made righteous. Christ imputed, he gave to you his righteousness. And so when God looks at you, he sees Christ. Yet you still are a sinner. You still have a battle with your flesh that requires you to daily put it to death, to daily take what is earthly in you and to lay it aside. And so Christian, you need the gospel because though you are positionally righteous, though you are holy already in Christ, you still struggle against sin. And when your struggle leads to failure and you do sin, you need to be reminded of who you really are. That's what the gospel does for us and why we still need it, even if we've been walking with the Lord for as long as we can remember. It reminds us who we are in Christ, but that's not all that the gospel reminds us of. It reminds us of what's been done for us. It reminds us of who we are, but it also reminds us of who we will one day be. So this is the last thing I want us to look at tonight. We've seen what the gospel is. We've seen why we need it. But what does it do? Let's look back at our passage again here. Starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're saved because God in his loving kindness appears in the person and work of Jesus Christ 
And he saves us for his own pleasure and glory, not because of what we've done. It's what we see in verses four and five, first half of five. In the second half of five, what we see is Paul says, this thing happens, that we've been washed by regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, the gospel reminds us of our regeneration. That is what Jesus means when he looks at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and he says, hey, you got to be born again. This spiritual life where we were once dead, being brought back to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what God said that his people truly needed throughout the Old Testament. As they would rebel against him and as judgment was coming against them because of their rebellion, he said, listen, there's going to come a day when what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to come and I'm going to take your sin... And I'm not just going to take your sin, but I'm going to take your heart, this heart of stone you have, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is going to be soft toward me. It's going to be uh, desiring for me and for my law and to obey me. And all of these reasons why you're being cast out, I'm going to give you the desire to do them so that I can bring you back in. That's what regeneration is the late 19th century Dutch theologian Herman Bobink says that in regeneration, a tremendously important change is brought about in us. This change is spiritual in character. The believers are recreated in the image of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. They no longer bear the image of the first man, Adam, but exhibit the image of the second man, the Lord out of heaven. They've been crucified to the world and no longer live themselves, but live in him who died and was raised for them. And so this washing of regeneration that Paul talks about, it's brought about by this work of the Holy Spirit. And it begins before we put our faith in Jesus and turn to him in repentance. Those are both fruits of regeneration of this newness of life being worked in our hearts. And as we see in verse 6, the gospel reminds us that this work of regeneration has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, which takes us down to verse 7. And the next thing we need to see that the gospel reminds us of, this thing that it does, it reminds us, something we've already talked about tonight, that we are justified. So in verse 7, he says, so that being justified by his grace. We talked about it a couple times tonight, but justification simply means where we stand in relation to God. By nature, we stand as rebels, and justification means that we now stand as sons and daughters. We're going to get into what that means here in just a second. But without the gospel, without Jesus saving us because of what he did, Rather than what we have done, we would still be standing here in our sin. No change would have taken place. And so when regeneration begins to take place in our hearts, it begins to reveal our sin to us. And as it exposes our sinful effort to be justified on our own, it begins to work in us this desire for faith and repentance and to move toward justification. Because the reality is that all of us want to be justified. There is something inside of us that wants to know that we stand right. The problem is, apart from Christ, we tend to seek out cheap substitutes for justification. 
I want to be self-justified. I want to look internally and I want to look at my own heart and I want to just be at peace within myself and I want to know that just everything that I'm doing and want to do is okay. And so we tell ourselves that things are okay and it's a cheap substitute that doesn't last. And when that doesn't work, we begin to look for external justification in the things around us, in the people around us. And so we look for people who validate how we feel. And if they don't, we find new people. We, we constantly are trying to find people to validate us or to hem people into doing so. Yet both external and internal justification aren't enough. They leave us wanting because we can't stand right before God looking to ourselves or to other people. There is only one place that we can look to stand genuinely justified, and that is in the grace of Jesus Christ that he's brought to us, that he's pursued us and given to us. He came and took the punishment the consequences of our rebellion against God. And then he comes to us and he exchanges his, our, our punishment for his righteousness. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, Perfect, completely and totally righteous, able to be justified in and of himself. He became sin so that in him, we, constantly seeking to justify ourselves and unable to do so, might become the righteousness of God. He justifies us. The gospel reminds us of our justification, yet the gospel also reminds us that God doesn't stop at just making us right and just making us righteous. He also makes us heirs. He adopts us into his family and he makes us a part of his people. It's the difference between seeing God as judge and father. If all God ever is is judge, if all that he's ever done for you is bang the gavel and said your sins are cleared, I really have no confidence that I can approach him when my sins that have been cleared begin to creep back into my life. I just don't know. What if he's mad? He already absolved me of that and I ran back to it. But if God is father, if he's adopted us and made us one of his own, then he takes off the robe and he sits down in his chair and he invites us to climb up into his lap. When we sin, we can go to him because we know that he'll forgive us because he's not an exacting father. He's gracious. He's kind. And he wants us to be his. He wants to make us his own. We're sons and daughters, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. 
Yet as we get brought into this new family, there's duties and responsibilities that we have because each family has its own set of rules. The way things work in my house are a lot different than the way things work in your house probably. There might be some similarities, but it's not going to all be the same. I probably let my kids watch too much TV. You probably are much better at being a little bit stricter than me, okay? I can go talk to God about that. (laughs) I don't do a great job all the time on that end. There's different rules. There's different structures that exist within families. And in the family of God, it's no different. We have duties and responsibilities when we're made a part of God's family. And so the gospel reminds us not only of our justification, not only of our adoption, but of our sanctification. If justification is our being declared positionally righteous, then sanctification is the processes of of us becoming actually righteous in practice. And so in verse 8, which we uh, read at the end earlier tonight, uh, Paul continues, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And we talked an awful lot about what the gospel is, but let me tell you what it isn't. It's not something you believe so that you can live however you want and still make it to heaven. Positional righteousness necessarily results in living righteously. Being saved by grace apart from works necessarily results in a devotion to good works. Because justification leads to sanctification. And so God has said, be holy because I am holy. And here's the great thing about this new heart that he's given us in Christ through the work of regeneration. So that old heart that we had was a heart of stone and it couldn't be moved even if it wanted to, to obey God. But this new heart that we've been given, it's a heart of flesh. And God says, when I give you that heart of flesh, I'm gonna move you to live in the way that I've always desired for you to live. Pursuing me in holiness. Sanctification is the past, present, and future work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life, making us more holy. I love how David Pallison says it in his book, How Does Sanctification Work? He says, becoming more holy doesn't mean that you become ethereal, ghostly, and detached from the storms of life. It means you're becoming a wiser human being. You're learning how to deal well with your money, your sexuality, your job. You're becoming a better friend and family member. When you talk, your words communicate more good sense, more gravitas, more joy, more reality. You're learning to pray honestly, bringing who God is to the reality of human need. And to grow in holiness doesn't mean that you now talk in hushed tones and every third sentence is a quote from the Bible. It means you live in clear-minded hope. You know the purpose of your life. And so you roll up your sleeves and get about doing what needs doing. Justification leads to sanctification. And sanctification, we're told in Romans 8, leads to glorification. Finally, the last thing we need to see that the gospel does is it not only reminds us of who we were and are, it points us to who we will one day be. When this process of sanctification is said and done, we're gonna be something 
different. So look back at verse 7. Paul says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're regenerated. We're justified and adopted so that when the work of sanctification is done, we will one day taste the joy of that blessed hope. We'll be free from sin, free from sorrow, free from death. There is hope for a day when all of the sad things will become untrue. And we're looking for that day. Everyone who tries to justify themselves is wanting that day. There's an old hymn we used to sing in the church where I grew up. It's probably one of the first songs I ever remember really entering into worship uh, with as I sang. I was nine years old. I'm sitting on the front row of Bearden First Assembly of God. And about 10 feet away to my left was a casket holding my dad's lifeless body. Yet in that moment, we sang these words. There's a happy land of promise over in the great beyond where the saved of earth shall soon the glory share, where the souls of men shall enter and live on forevermore. Everybody will be happy over there. We'll hear nobody praying and no mourning in that land for no burdens there will be for us to bear. All the people will be singing glory, glory to the land. Everybody will be happy over there. There we'll meet the one who saved us and who kept us by his grace and who brought us to that land so bright and fair. We will praise his name forever as we look upon his face. Everybody will be happy over there. And I remember standing in the front of that church, lifting my hands, and with a couple hundred folks who were there that day, belting out these words. A song about being happy at a funeral. Because we knew that what my dad knew was the hope of the gospel. And so we could sing because in that moment, though his body lay in the casket, he was standing face to face with his Savior. He was singing glory, glory to the Lamb. And we could sing and we could rejoice because we knew that his path of sanctification was done. And that as we walked with Christ, one day would, ours would be. And we would sing together, looking upon the face of Jesus. Because the lamb that we were singing about would be standing in front of us. And everybody would be happy over there. The sorrow would be for a moment. The joy would come in the morning. And we had hope. But friends, though everybody who's there will be indeed happy and more happy than our hearts can dare imagine tonight. Not everybody's going to be there. And those that aren't will be anything but happy. 
You see, that happiness, the kind that's rooted in and established in this real, genuine hope that Paul says Christians are heirs to, it's tied directly to this gospel that we've been talking about tonight. So listen to me. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, the goal of the gospel is not to give you fire insurance. We read earlier in the catechism about what the destiny for those who don't accept the gospel and turn to Christ in repentance is. But the gospel is not about that. It's not about escaping the punishment that we all deserve. The goal of the gospel is to give you the God of the gospel. Because God is the gospel. So listen to to Paul's words again tonight. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is the gospel that God wants to save sinners And he wants to save you from your sin because of his righteousness and his glory, not because of anything that you've done, rather in spite of it, because God is merciful. And that's good news for unbelievers and believers alike tonight. If you haven't believed the gospel tonight, you can. Here are just a few moments as those of us who've trusted in Jesus, take the Lord's Supper. There'll be folks on either side of the platform and and we'd love the opportunity to pray with you. If that's your need, come. Come and receive the gospel tonight. As the band makes their way back up this evening, let's pray together.